So allow me to read the passage for us, 1 Corinthians, towards the end, chapter 9, beginning of verse 24. 1 Corinthians, chapter 9, verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Chapter 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that was followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written that the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be a participant with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Father, thank you for this reading of your word. And Lord, as we consider it, Lord, I pray that we have hearts of humility. Lord, I pray that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear. And Lord, may the fruit of our time be a love and esteem 
for your son, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Growing up in California, my family and I would sometimes visit this lake named Lake Isabella, and connected to this lake was the Kern River. Kern River, the, the top of the, the, the river that was maybe the safer part, was a, a, a favorite destination of those who like to go whitewater rafting. So I have many memories of camping with my family, going down the tubes, using water you know, guides. But as we would journey up the mountain to this lake and to this river, there would be these ominous signs just about everywhere. And they, they would say things like this, danger, stay out, stay alive, caution, rivers are dangerous. And even more ominous than all the big words was the number they had posted. The number of lives who have drowned in the Kern River, apparently America's deadliest river. And, and it's interesting, year after year as we would visit, we, we, we noticed that the number would increasingly tick up. Last time I've been there was maybe as a senior in high school, and I think the number was in the mid-200s. And just doing some brief research, I, I, I saw that the number currently sits at 335. That even though there is copious amounts of warnings, danger, every year the Kern River seems to take people's lives. And so as tragic as it is, I'm sure that everyone who got in the river that day assumed that the warnings did not apply to them. They assumed that because of their confidence, because of their situation, because of their circumstances, that those warnings were for other people. And so whether it was overconfidence or ignorance, tragically, because they failed to heed the warnings before them, they lost their lives. In the passage that we just read, Paul is giving his readers, the Corinthian believers, a warning. You could even say it's a, it's a deadly warning. He's saying, watch out. Be careful. The way you are headed is going to lead you to destruction. And so the book of 1 Corinthians, I know it's been a few months since we've looked at it. Allow me just to spend a moment to catch us up or to maybe, if, if you haven't been around for this series, to, to fill you in some of the details. The, the Corinthian church is a very fascinating church. They were very spiritually gifted. And they also had a lot of spiritual knowledge. But just because they were spiritually gifted and had a lot of knowledge, they were actually a very spiritually immature church. There's a lot of factions and divisions. They're, they're, they're willing to split over their different leaders. They are in, in many ways just condoning egregious sin by having people in their midst, um, you know, tolerating their behavior. You have lawsuits among believers. You have those engaged in sexual morality with prostitutes. You have those who are thinking that they're more spiritually you know, superior to other Christians because they practice asceticism. I mean, the, the list goes on and on. And, and back in chapter 8, Paul actually begins a long discussion that the Corinthian believers are struggling with in regards to meat being offered to pagan gods. Now, on the surface, contemporary Americans, we, we hear this idea of meat being offered to gods, and we think, what in the world does it have anything to do with us? 
well, different contexts, but, but the principles are still the same. Now, in essence, what these Corinthian believers are guilty of is they're guilty of, of taking their Christian freedom, taking their Christian liberty, and only thinking about themselves. That, that, that really, they, some of these believers were saying, well, hey, you know, there's no such thing as a, another God. There's only one God. You guys should all know that. So this meat being offered to this imaginary God, it's just meat. So we can easily go to these pagan rituals and whatever meat they're having, it's a great way to get your protein source. And so we're going to be there. But some of these maybe newer believers said, well, wait a second. That's not right. Like, my, my conscience won't allow that. And so, again, you, you have this issue that's causing this division where some of these believers, because of their quote-unquote freedom, are causing these younger believers to sin. And so Paul says, listen, you guys need to understand that the freedom you've been given is, is not for you to just do whatever you want with. And so that's why he says at the end of chapter 8, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat. I'll become a vegetarian lest I make my brother stumble. You know, just a moment ago, we sang in our songs for freedom, right? We, we, we talk about this idea of Christian freedom. Well, what does that look like? Well, Paul says it doesn't look like you just demanding on your own way if it's going to hurt spiritually someone else. And so in chapter 9, Paul gives a long example of his own life, of how he has certain rights and privileges and freedoms, that he can take compensation as a gospel worker. But for the sake of the gospel, Paul says, I have this rightful claim, but I'm going to forego it. And so now, Paul, though, after kind of helping them see this understanding of Christian freedom and Christian liberty from the perspective of others, Paul is going to be a little bit more direct. He's, it's, it's a long conversation, chapters 8, 9, and 10. And so today, Paul is going to come right out and he's going to tell them what it's like. You guys, because of your quote-unquote Christian freedom, have actually put yourself in a position into which you are in sin. They have let their freedoms, their rights, their Christian freedom compromise them to the point that they are in danger of God's judgment. And so this is the warning. Warning, do not use your Christian freedom as an opportunity to compromise you. And so this is really the main theme of my sermon this morning, keeping along these themes. We'll have it on the screen for you. But, but here's the main point. Be careful. Warning. Danger ahead. Don't use your Christian liberty to lead you into sinful compromise. And so these, these ancient believers in Corinth, they, they needed some helpful instruction about how to use their knowledge. Their knowledge should be used to help others. They also need to be encouraged. How do Christians operate with these freedoms that we've been given in Christ? And one of the things that I think is really helpful about this passage is that Paul helps kind of work through this danger that Christians historically fall into when it comes to Christian freedom. There's typically two camps that we can struggle with when it comes to Christian freedom. One camp says, well, because there's danger of sin over there, let's just come up with a bunch of external rules, regulations, and ordinances. And some say, well, that's not the right answer. 
we have freedom in Christ, and so we're free to indulge in whatever we want. Kind of like the camp of license. So let's take alcohol, for example. Do I have the freedom in Christ to enjoy alcohol? I'm asking for myself right now. Well, I don't believe anywhere in Scripture that it prohibits me from, from being able to drink alcohol. So if I wanted to have a glass of wine or, or a nice cold beer on a hot summer day, I, I believe I have that right, that freedom. It's not a sin. But does my Christian freedom allow me to have two drinks? Well, if I can have two drinks, can I have three drinks? Well, if my Christian freedom lets me have three drinks, can I have four? Did you see, eventually... In the name of Christian freedom, I can actually cross a line into which I'm no longer actually honoring the Lord, but I'm in sin. And this is really the the heart of of, of Paul's argument, is that you have let your Christian freedom lead you, you've kind of crossed that line into a point to where you are compromised. And now you face God's judgment. And so that's the point. Be careful that your Christian liberty doesn't lead you down this path of Christian or or simple compromise. And so Paul wants a better path forward. He wants to help the Corinthians and by extension, he wants to help us learn how to navigate. How should we deal with our Christian liberty? And so along this path, there are three ways or arguments that Paul gives to help us think clearly about Christian freedom and Christian liberty. And the first is this. And we need to establish a disciplined mindset. If you look at your Bibles again with me, at the end of chapter 9, Paul begins to kind of help us with this idea of Christian freedom by giving us the imagery of an athlete, right? Uh, the, The Corinthian culture was very much into sports just like America. Corinth would actually host the Isthmian Games, which happened every two years. The Isthmian Games were were really important because they were like the, the qualifiers for the Olympics, you know, the Olympics would happen in, in Athens, Greece, not too far from Corinth. And so a lot of the people who would compete in the Olympics would be in Corinth. And so this illustration that Paul is giving them would have, would have immediately made sense in their mind. And, and it's a, such a good illustration because it's so simple, right? He says, don't you know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? Now, you know, all of you who raise millennials need to maybe read this verse and not just give out participation trophies. But for most of history and mankind, one person gets the prize. And so Paul says, the type of mindset, the type of mentality that you need to have about your Christian life is the mindset of the athlete who is trying to win the prize. And so is that mindset gonna, of the athlete, if the athlete is trying to get gold, He's trying to win. Is that mindset going to be that I'm going to eat Twinkies all day? I'm going to stay up late and never sleep? I'm going to disregard training because something else seems like fun? Absolutely not. Right? The, The disciplined athlete is the one who's going to sacrifice good food and good drink. They they decline social events because they need to train. As he says, every athlete needs to practice self-control in all things. And so, so what Paul is teaching, he's saying, as, as Paul is saying, as a believer, as an apostle, 
that he needs to live his Christian life. He needs to run his Christian life in a way that is not reckless. He does not just run aimlessly. He's not like a boxer punching air. But what he does is he keeps his body under control. He disciplines himself. And so why does Paul discipline himself? Why do athletes discipline themselves? Well, they do it, because he says, to receive a perishable wreath. But we, an imperishable wreath. Again, his, his argument is simple. You know, one commentary I read said that the, the perishable wreath that they handed out at the Isthmian Games was dried up vegetables, uh, um, celery, right? And so they'd take this celery stalk and it was dried out and they'd weave it together and put a crown on. And, and Paul is saying, if, if an athlete is willing to sacrifice so much for some dried up vegetables, how much more should we discipline ourselves to receive the imperishable crown that will never spoil or fade. And so instead of aimlessly making decisions in our Christian life or worrying about our own concerns and our own comforts, Paul is saying we need to have a disciplined mindset. We are running a race. We cannot afford to be thoughtless or unconcerned about how we use our Christian liberty or freedom. And so look what Paul says in verse 27. He says, lest after preaching to, he says, if I am not disciplined, here's what happens. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now what what does Paul mean here? Some would argue that Paul is just referring back to chapter 3 where he talks about those who do not build well, they might not lose their salvation, but they will experience some loss. And so Paul is saying, You know, if I don't discipline myself in the race, don't worry, I'm still going to make it, but I just might not get any rewards. And that is one view, but especially in in the context of what Paul's about to give us, especially in chapter 10, about Israel failing to reach the promised land, Paul here actually seems to be saying that no, he is going to lose out on his salvation if he does not discipline himself like an athlete does. And so this brings up the perennial and tricky question. Is Paul here teaching us that if we're not disciplined enough, if I don't do enough things, then I can lose my salvation? So I want to observe that question. And we're going to pin it away for a moment. And next point, I'm going to address it a little bit more. But at the very least, here's what Paul is teaching us. That we shouldn't approach our Christian lives as undisciplined and uninterested spectators and expect to receive a crown. And so the reason why I think this illustration is so brilliant is because, again, Paul, he encourages a mindset more than a bunch of lists of rules. Instead of saying, take your liberty and do whatever you want, or here's all the different ordinances, he gives them a way to think and a mentality of how to approach every situation. You see, if we, if we pick up this illustration of drinking again, some Christians have argued in the past historically and maybe even now that because there is a danger of eventually crossing the line into sin of overconsuming alcohol, they would argue drinking at all is bad. 
Some, some have argued that close physical proximity with the opposite sex leads to sexual immorality. Therefore, all dancing is banned. But I don't think that's what Paul wants us to think about, just putting up random legislation and random rules that seem arbitrary. You know, life is usually not as simple as black and white. There's, there's nuance, there's situations, there's context, there's different cultures. And so instead, he says, have the mentality of someone who is disciplined, who is aiming for the prize. And so what a mentality does is it forces us to ask questions instead of legislate rules. A mindset will ask questions like this. And what I'm about to do, does it glorify Christ? Does this thing that I'm participating in, does it help my soul? Does it encourage faith, hope, and love? Does what I'm talking about, does what I'm involved with, does it promote godliness or the reputation of Christ? Does me doing this thing help my fellow brothers and sisters? See, the problem we have is that we typically only have two questions we ask ourselves when we are deciding if we can do something. We say, is it sinful or is it not? So if a few people come over to your house, maybe it's a movie you're going to recommend and you're kind of wondering, yeah, there's some dicey scenes in there. I'm not really sure. Is it sinful if we play this movie? Well, no, it's not sinful. Then we should do it. And if we're just black and white like that, I think we actually miss out on what Paul is saying here. Because more than just is it sinful or is it okay, we need to ask questions about is this useful? Is this wise? Is it profitable? Does it help others? And so the runner aiming for the prize is not the person who says, how close can I get to the line of sin without actually going into sin? You know, as a young man, I had all these conversations with my friends growing up. How far is too far with my girlfriend? What, what's the line? How, what's the closest I can get to with physical, you know, relationship that's not actually sin? And, and Paul says, if those are the questions you're asking, you already have the, the wrong mindset. Your mindset should not be, how much can I get away with? More should it be, how can I honor Christ? Consider what J.C. Ryle has to say about this. These are very potent words. He says, and I quote, keep clear of everything which may prove injurious to your soul. People may say you are too conscientious, too particular, and ask, where is the great harm of such and such things? But don't listen to them. It is dangerous to play tricks with sharp tools. It is far more dangerous to take liberties with your immortal soul. He that would be safe must not come near the brink of danger. He must look on his heart as a barrel of gunpowder and be cautious not to handle one spark of temptation more than he can help. The disciplined athlete says, not just what is sin and what isn't sin, but what is most profitable. What helps the glory of Christ? 
And so it's this, this disciplined mindset enabled by God's grace that we need in order to live our Christian life in such a way that we receive the prize. Friends, we are to be vigilant in casting off the sin and the weight that so easily entangles us. That as we run our Christian lives, we would fix our eyes on Christ, who's both the example and the perfecter of our salvation. So how do we learn to deal with our Christian freedom? How do we help in this better path forward? Well, first, we have a disciplined mindset. But secondly, Paul says, we need to respond to the warnings. And we see this in chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. And, and at first, it seems like Paul is getting into a bit of a digression. He's talking about runners and not being disqualified. Then all of a sudden, we're jumped right back into this, this long story about Israel and then going to the Red Sea. And, 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 and we're kind of wondering, like, Paul, how does this relate to anything? And, and it's actually quite genius what Paul is doing here. He's talking about you can live your Christian life in such a way that you can be disqualified. And what better example is there than the Old Testament Israelites who disqualified themselves from entering into the promised land? And so in this passage, we actually learn a lot, and I'd love to maybe even spend more time on this, but I can't say everything I want, but there's a lot of things we learn in this particular passage of how, as Christians, we read the Old Testament. First, if you notice in verse 1, Paul says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, it's very interesting, we're all under the cloud. Now, now, Paul is not talking to Jews, he's talking to Gentile believers, and he references the Old Testament saints as our fathers. But more than this, if you look in verses 6 and 11, Paul says, these things took place as examples. Now, that's an interesting word. In, in the Greek, that word is the word tupos, where we get the word typology okay and so what Paul is actually saying is Old Testament Israel all which we read earlier in, in Psalm 105 with all of its history of Egypt and going through the Red Sea and Mount Sinai and their wanderings and the Korah rebellion and, and the sexual morality in Numbers 25 all of that actually correlates to the believers to the Christian church and so Paul actually wants to say, like, hey, I know it's tempting to look at them and think we have nothing in common, but in verses 1 through 5, what he does is he actually weaves together the two stories. Do you notice he says in verse 1, he says, they, 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 they were all under the cloud, they all passed through the sea. So they had the same presence and protection of God. Look at this, verse 2, they even have baptism. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud in the sea. So just as we are baptized into Christ, they were baptized into their leader. Verse 3, and they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. So as they ate quail and, and ate the manna and drank from the rock, Paul is saying they had a communion of sorts. They had spiritual food and drink just like we do. And, and so Paul is saying all, all of that, it actually points to what we have, all of those blessings. And so in typology, we, we usually talk about escalation. That what the type is referring to in the anti-type, the anti-type actually has a greater reality. So if the Israelites had, had spiritual blessings, what it's pointing to, the church, has even greater spiritual blessings. But if the Israelites had judgment, the judgment that it points to is an even greater judgment. 
And so maybe the most fascinating thing he says in these verses, in verse 4, he says, For they drink from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now, Paul is not saying that Jesus was a literal rock. But what he is saying is that Christ spiritually was there with his people providing. And so what he's doing, he's saying, hey, Corinthians, don't look at the Old Testament Israelites and think you have nothing to learn from them. They're just like you. They had all the same spiritual blessings. They had the same provision and protection. They had baptism. They had the Lord's Supper. They had Christ leading and providing for them, just as you do. And look what it says in verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And so here's an example of, of a group of people who had all of the same type of spiritual blessings. And yet because of their sin, they disqualify themselves from entering into God's rest. Now with all of this, what Paul is trying to help us understand here is that ultimately, we need to be careful. We need to be warned that if we engage in the same type of behavior as the Israelites, we will find ourselves with the same judgment, which is why in verse 6 he says, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Now, I don't have time to go through every observation in these next verses, but what Paul does is he recounts a number of different Old Testament stories, namely the golden calf episode where Aaron, Aaron done messed up and he made the golden calf. And also in Numbers 25, we see the Israelite men having sexual morality relationships with the Moabite women. And we also see maybe the Korah's rebellion alluded to a little bit here. But what's so genius about what Paul is doing in this illustration and this example, it's not just that Israel correlates the same type of spiritual and sacramental privileges the church has. It's not just that Israel lost their, their divine birthright of the promised land because of their sin. It's because they had the sins of idolatry and sexual immorality. And the reason why that is so important is because the two sins that Paul has been harking on in the, in the book of 1 Corinthians, idolatry and sexual immorality. He's saying, Corinthians, don't you get it? These people had the same sins as you, idolatry and sexual morality, and they lost out. So I think just really quick, it's worth just maybe connecting those two sins, idolatry and sexual morality. Biblically speaking, those two sins are often joined together because they are often symbiotic of themselves. So back in chapter 6, verse 18 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, flee from sexual morality, right? If you look later in chapter 10, verse 14, he says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I appreciate how one commentator says it. He says this, people who change their sexual partners will often end up changing their gods as well. And if we are tempted to do either, then the scattering of dead bodies in the wilderness should be a warning to us all. So he's saying, look at Israel. Look at the sins they committed. Be warned. Which is why maybe the key verse of the entire passage we're considering this morning is right here in verse 12. Would you look down at it? This is, this is his main point, really. 
Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Do not be so prideful to think that you do not need to hear the warnings, that you are somehow better than Israel. Respond, take heed. And what I love most about this passage is that right after he gives the warning, he follows it up with a beautiful verse of grace. If you're not familiar with Bible memory, if you've never memorized a portion of the Bible, this could be your first verse, a great verse to memorize right here in verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That's a wonderful verse for many reasons. First, some of us here, we think that the sins and the temptations we struggle with are unique. We might feel ashamed about them. We might feel embarrassed. But what Paul says here, nothing is new under the sun. All of the sin that we struggle with, that we're tempted with, it is common. And so that doesn't make it seem like it's, it's not important or it's not significant. It just lets you know that there is wisdom for you. There's people who can relate. You can find solidarity. But more than this, what God's word is teaching us here is that when we are tempted to sin, when we are tempted to give into particularly the sins of idolatry and sexual morality, God has never placed us in a position into which we cannot respond with a godly response. Sin does not have to be the answer that you go with when you are tempted. And so I, I love how so Paul just says, God is faithful. And this is what he also said in the beginning of the book, chapter 1, verse, verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called. And so at this point, maybe it's a good time to un, you know, button our, our, our question here. It, this, does Paul seem to be teaching that if you were not careful, if you were not disciplined, you will find yourself disqualified just like the Israelites and out of God's grace. Because verse 13 seems to teach that God is gracious and he's going to make sure that you actually make it through your temptation. Some people like to focus on the warning passages. Some people like to focus on the grace passages. We have a tension here. So allow me to give two brief comments. First, the warning passages are real. If, as Christians, we continue to worship created things, which is idolatry, and if we continue to indulge in sexual immorality, we will face God's judgment. Consider what Paul says back in chapter 6, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul says in our passage, be careful. Warning. If you live this way, you will lose out on your salvation. And so I need to just maybe be aware of, of the feelings and the tensions in our hearts right now. When we read passages like this, it has a profound effect on the assurance of our salvation. 
we can might wonder and say, well, sometimes I do some of these sins. Sometimes I wonder if I'm doing enough. Does that mean I've, I've disqualified myself? Does that mean I'm out? And I understand that sometimes it could be very, you know, misquieting. And, and, and what do we do? And so we kind of just try to avoid those warnings and just go for the grace. But here's what I like to say about warning passages in the New Testament. The way that the warning passages work in the New Testament is that they are the means that God uses to ensure that believers don't fall away and that they would avoid the judgments that they would have faced if they did. It sounds confusing, but allow me to quote Spurgeon. Anytime it's confusing, just quote Charles Spurgeon. I quote, God preserves his children from falling away but he keeps them by the use of certain means. So he's saying God will preserve his children, but the way that God keeps his children, he uses certain things to do that. And one of those means is the terrors of the law, showing them what would happen if they were to fall away. In this, there is a deep pericope. What is the best way to keep anyone from going down there? Why? To tell them that if he did, he would inevitably be dashed to pieces. So no, I do not believe Paul is teaching us here that you can lose your salvation. Ultimately, those who show themselves to be disqualified were those who never were in the race at all. And so we need to remember when we have these doubts about our assurance of salvation of God's faithfulness, that it's God's grace enabling us to live this Christian life. And the second thing I would say is as we respond to the warnings by fleeing from sexual morality, by fleeing from idolatry, our assurance of salvation grows. This is why Paul, my my point is this, respond to the warnings. Flee from sin. And so two brief ways in which I think we can apply some of these thoughts here. First, may as Christians, we never presume upon God's grace. Let us not be so prideful to think that we can claim God's grace and continue to live in habitual, unrepentant sin. Let us respond to the warnings today in the same way that the author of Hebrews reminds his audience when he says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Let us strive to enter the rest and the promise that God has given us in Christ that we may not fall by the same sort of disobedience Let us as Christians in this church be people who joyfully submit and sit under God's words. Let us have humble hearts that we are able to receive correction from one another. May when the Lord is gracious to reveal anything in us that is not profitable for our souls, that we would turn. But secondly, let us also embrace and trust God's faithfulness that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. Let us remember God's faithfulness as we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Deliver us from the evil one. Lead us not into temptation. When you pray the Lord's Prayer, believe that your heavenly Father desires for you to not respond to your temptation with sin. So respond to the warnings. But lastly, and more briefly, in our last section, Paul says refuse to compromise. So, 
really, at this point now, Paul has, has had a lot of talk about what to do with those who are willing to go to these pagan festivals and eat this meat offered to these gods. And at first, he kind of starts off a little soft. He says, hey, for the sake of others, refuse your rights. But now he comes right down to it, and he tells them exactly what he thinks. Verse 14, therefore, and he kind of coaches in some love, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So at this point, what, what Paul is actually saying, because you have used your Christian freedom that you thought, because there's no actual gods behind this meat, it's just meat, Paul says you have actually led yourself to the point to where you are being an idolater. You're committing the sin of idolatry by, by thinking you can use your freedom to go to these pagan rituals. And, and Paul wants them to know this is absolutely idolatry this is a sin no you cannot go to these temples so do you notice how he starts off kind of soft in in chapter eight and he's kind of building and so right now he's just like i'm going to tell you right now how i think eating in the temples of idols is nothing less than idolatry and he gives them two arguments to kind of show them that first he says those of us who are christians we, we should know how spiritual and how worshipful food and drink is. Right? Do me a favor. Look down at your Bible. Chapter 10, verse 15. I speak as sensible people. Judge for yourselves. The cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break is it not a participation in the body of Christ. And he's saying here, how many of you, if you come to church, if you take communion, you would say, oh, we're not worshiping. It's just a meal. He says, absolutely not. When we come here and we, we eat and we drink the, the spiritual food given to us by Christ, it, it is not merely a snack. It is not merely an exercise in sentimentality. This is a spiritual nourishing thing in which we are worshiping. It is, it is helping our, he even goes on to say um, in verse 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. That, that also this time is for, for the, the unity of the church. That we participate together as the church. We are many, but we are one in the body of Christ. And so Paul says, your logic is completely flawed. You think you can go to these pagan temples and we're going to eat this and drink this and we're not worshiping. Who would ever come to a Christian service and think this isn't worship when we eat and drink? And he says the same thing in verse 18. The people of Israel, those who would give sacrifices at the altar when they ate, how many of them would say, I'm not worshiping right now? So he's saying, you guys are clearly delusional. And so he's like, I'm not implying that these gods are actually anything. And here's where maybe this gets interesting. And this is the part where I had to pray a lot about, like, what does this mean for us, okay? Uh, very interesting. Verse 20, now I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. Okay, so Paul is saying, yes, those gods, they aren't real. But at the end of the day, there is a demonic presence behind idolatry there's a type of satanic intelligence that goes behind all forms of idolatry and so yes none of us i don't think are going to be tempted that after this service we're going to drive over to the temple of zeus and to get some free steak and say well it's just me not a big deal let's say hope not but although their idols looked a lot different their idols had temples, 
Their idols had rituals and sacrifices. We still have idols in our day. We have idols of greed, power, sex, control. And so what Paul actually seems to be saying here, he's saying, when you actually worship with an idol, spiritually speaking, here's what you're doing. You are spiritually dining with demons. And he's saying, this can't be. For those who are Christians, we have been bought by the blood of Christ. We have been purchased. We belong to God. We cannot have the participation with the Lord and be dining with demons. At that point, we are provoking the Lord to jealousy. So when you look at that webpage, or you look at that bank account that that makes you greedy over your money, when you have that relationship that you need in order to make you feel secure, or maybe you have certain interests in status icons and symbols, the cars, the trips, the homes, the clothes, whatever idol you struggle with, what Paul is saying is when you use your Christian freedom to say, well, it's just a movie, it's just some nice stuff, it's just a fling with this person, When you bow down to an idol, spiritually speaking, what you are doing is you are dining with demons. You're engaging in spiritual warfare. And Paul says, may we not be the people who provoke the Lord's jealousy like the Israelites did. And so what they did by using their quote-unquote Christian freedom is they found themselves spiritually compromised. That's why Paul says flee. And so, friends, for us, there, there's a warning ahead of us. It says, run. Danger. Are you going to use your Christian freedom and the liberty that Christ has given you just to continue to do whatever you want? To potentially lead you to engaging in idolatry? Paul says, no. No. Be like the disciplined athlete running for the prize. Remember Israel and their failure and respond. Refuse to give in to compromise. Refuse to put yourself in a situation in which you might be actually worshiping something other than the Lord. And so all of this is done when we remember who the Lord Jesus is. All of chapter 8, 9, and 10, the example that should be in the back of our mind is the Lord Jesus, who when he came to this earth as a baby, did not look to his own rights and freedoms, but rather he gave his life to others in order to serve. He used the freedom that he had to glorify his heavenly Father and to help others. And so if you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, the thing that we would love for you to hear most about anything is how you desperately need a Savior. Just like the Israelites that we read about in this passage who experienced God's judgment, that is what is ahead of all of those who are not found in Christ. And so God is gracious and loving, and instead of us having to deal with the punishment and the judgment of our sin, God the Son came and he lived a perfect life. 
He died on the cross as a substitute for our sins. That if we were to put our faith in Christ and to turn from our sins and repentance, we could be saved. That we do not have to experience the terror of God's judgment. And for those of us who are Christians, may we respond. May we never presume upon the grace of God. May we always respond by remembering that God has given me a way out, that God is faithful. And so friends, be careful. Do not let your Christian freedom lead you to simple compromise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. And God, we ask by your divine aid that you would help us to be the people who respond to the warnings. Lord, we thank you for the great Christian freedom you have given us, Lord. May we use it to glorify you and to serve others.